Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I was thinking about this week. Since we recorded the last episode, we have a new prime minister in the UK and China elected, elected, (laughs) funny (laughs) word, uh, appointed a president for life. That's got to be one of the bigger news weeks in our our little block. I mean, the funny thing about, yeah, like China too, is that in a way that's a bit like Xi Jinping becoming a kind of president for life may actually be the biggest story of the week, but it's so not dramatic. Um, Only the Hu Jintao piece, which we'll talk about. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. It's not like people had to like you know, stay in line past seven o'clock. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. College towns are still yeah, out yeah. In, College, in Shanghai. The no. votes are still out. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Still kind no. of the mail-in ballots in Beijing, you know. <laughs> uh, I could not be more excited about this episode, though, because, look, we're gonna have a little fun talking about the mess that is British politics. You'll do much more on that in our interview later, which, why don't you just tell people they're gonna David be excited. Lammy. David Lammy, I mean. Lammy. Uh, you just wrapped. What'd you guys talk just about? Just wrapped. I mean, you know, I, I, he is our correspondent for... When uh, Tory prime ministers collapse, implode. Um, we talked about like how did Rishi Sunak become prime minister? Why is the Tory party in such chaos? What what do some of these Tory MPs say privately to to Lammy? Because you know they're they're in parliament together. Um, how is Labour drawing a distinction? What is the story they're telling? Um, what are the chances of a general election mm. before 2025? And and what does it mean for, for Rishi Sunak you know, to be the first person of color to be prime minister? And David obviously has a unique perspective on that as a, as a black Briton himself. So uh, wide ranging as always, um, awesome as always to have David Lemmy. Cannot wait to hear that. Down. So we'll all, you and I will have a little fun with the British politics. Yes. Uh, there's uh, political fights in the US that will cover over support for the war in Ukraine that got interesting today. Uh, there's lots of news out of the China Party Congress, Saudi Arabia and big money mm. becoming a theme or a runner. Uh, how former Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu is trying to mount a comeback. Brazil's election is coming up. Some quick updates from the Department of Justice, some Iran news, Ethiopia, and then well, Mar-a-Lago. And then we'll go to Boy, Lady. what a, like, 31 flavors here today. It's now, we got a big election here in the U.S., been uh, coming first, but then the 2022 World Cup will be here. It is the biggest sporting event of the year. We think it's the Olympics. I think globally, it's more likely to be the World Cup. It's yeah. like a little Super Bowl a day for a couple of weeks. Uh, thanks to a bottomless well of corruption over at FIFA, the, the governing body that uh, controls global soccer. The cup is going to be held in Qatar this year. That makes no sense. They had to switch the season of the games to winter because it's 120 degrees in the summer. Oopsies. Yeah. That would be like having uh, a you know international baseball tournament in August. Or the Winter Olympics in the Black Sea Resort town of Sochi, as <laughs> yeah, has happened right. in 2014. Yeah. But like and another corrupt- uh, Totally yeah, corrupt. Yeah. Up into the whole EPL yeah. system, uh, the schedule, I mean. Um, the, you know, Qatar uh, treats women terribly, LGBT people terribly, and they had no infrastructure when they were awarded the games in 2010, which means all of it was built by migrant laborers in horrible, dangerously unsafe conditions, and thousands of people have died since. So in my uh, series, the Roger Bennett, the charmingly accented, hilarious 
uh, soccer fanatic in our, our series, World Corrupt. We unpack how you deal with this as a sports fan when you have a game you love and you watch it being perverted by big money and corrupt governments. Uh, we talk to human rights activists, soccer royalty like Megan Rapinoe, friend of the pod, Matt Miller. Mm. Remember Matt worked for Eric Holder, the attorney general. Yeah, yeah. So Joe Biden was supposed to go to the 2010 like final couple of days before they awarded the cup in Zurich. Uh, Biden had to go to a funeral, speak at a funeral or something. So Eric Holder went in his stead. And so Matt went with him. And so they all just witnessed all this corruption before oh, their very eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't do corruption in front of the, <laughs> from, from the attorney lawyers. general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a great show. I hope you guys will check it out. It's on your podcast feed right now. The episodes are tight. It's like 35 minutes. You'll learn a ton. So please enjoy. Um, all right, Ben. Want to talk a little British politics? Did you get enough out of Lammy? No, you feeling burnt it's, out? It's, no, he's never enough. It's it's so much fun. It's so much more fun with his accent. Yeah, well, that's true. Actually, everything's a little more fun with the British. I accent. just feel uh, I feel wrong doing this, but whatever. So, not only since the last episode has uh, Liz Truss resigned uh, after just forty five days on the job, she did not outlast the rotting head of lettuce. Yeah which made our title feel kind of, you know, prescient. Uh, for her distinguished service, did you see that she will be able to get paid up to $130,000 per year? I did. For, yeah. <laughs> for costs associated with her, quote, special position in yeah. public life. Yeah. Well, it's five prime ministers in six years. Uh, so like, uh, I'm sure when they created this allowance for former prime ministers, they didn't envision this rate of turnover. You know? oh my God, so much money. Uh, over the weekend, there was talk that Boris Johnson might try to mount a comeback. Boris and his cronies were telling people that he had lined up 100 members of parliament to back him. He ultimately bowed out. Uh, it didn't seem like he had 100 votes lined up. Yeah, and it, it, it like his heart didn't seem that into it. I mean, he because uh, he probably knows, as we may get into, like, it's a shit show. Like, the inflation has yes. run away. They have no money. Yes. So Boris interrupted, I think, is like, what was he in the Caribbean? Like, he's on some vacation. Did you see the photos they put out yeah. of him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of those photos where, like, the only reaction on Twitter was, like, imagine the photo. They said, no, let's do this one instead. Like, it was yeah. such a bad picture. It was, yeah. And so he lands. He spends about 24 hours saying he's going to be prime minister. And then he he threw in the towel pretty quick. Threw right? in the towel. Yeah. So instead, as you mentioned, Rishi Sunak is the new prime minister of the UK. Uh, Rishi Sunak is the former chancellor of the Exchequer. It's like our treasury secretary. He's 42 years old. That's so annoying. Uh, first person of color, first Hindu to lead the UK. And he's filthy rich. Yeah. Like, fuck you money. Hundreds yeah. of millions. Yeah. Must no, well, really billions. I mean, I... I Bees? Because so, he married um, his, his, his father-in-law, so his wife's father, who's Indian... Uh, is worth a uh, four and a half billion dollars. Oh my god! Um, There's got to so, be a prenup there, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was some Ironclad. there was some scandal in the UK about whether because they, they weren't paying taxes. Yeah, she uh, wasn't yeah, paying yeah, yeah, yeah. foreign taxes. Um, and by the way, like I think the father-in-law is a big Modi supporter. You oh, know? good. Um, so, but yeah, there, there's no Rishi Sunak will not need the hundred and. £20,000 or whatever it is, pension. Let's just put it that way. He's, so He's doing all right. You know. You'll hear much more substance. Just of, the man of the times for a cost of living it, crisis, Exactly. Right? The know? man you yeah. need and uh, when people can't pay their gas bills. So you'll hear more about this substantively in, in Ben's conversation with David Lemmy. Let's just have some fun. It is really hard to, I think, fully capture how chaotic those last few weeks were for trusts. Her economic plan fully collapsed. She fired her treasury and home secretary. She was jeered in parliament. There was like mass confusion about votes and about their policy towards, you know, a pension cost of living increase. You had these like genteel old conservative NPs like stumbling onto BBC sets and like, yeah, yeah. unloading yeah, like yeah. it was the first time they've been to therapy in 75 years or something. Um, here's my question for you, Ben. Did this ordeal make you more worried about our British friends and their system or 
or a little envious of the instant gratification of seeing Truss and her uh, 6% approval rating ushered out the door. It is more fun. Um, and it's less like grim than American politics. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's this kind of weird uh, energy around British politics. To be slightly serious for a second, the, the, the negative thing, of course, is that they keep having a system in which you can elect prime ministers with a very small number of people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like the, it, it, like you would think that like at a certain point, maybe you get- Seems like a problem. Yeah. Maybe you get one prime minister, um, you know, that can be chosen without an election. But like, I think maybe two is where you need someone. The positive sign I'd say for British politics is that Liz Truss, clearly a catastrophic uh, person, uh, incompetent person to be prime minister. You know, she, her last approval rating I saw was 6%. Mm-hmm. That couldn't happen here, right? Like, I, I actually have admiration I for the British Tories and the British people as much as I have lots of criticisms of the British Tories of like, there's a there's a bottom that could fall out there, right? Totally. Like Donald Trump, as you know, could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and, and you know, 39% is probably about as low as his approval yeah. rate could go, right? Like, so the, the downside for them is they have a bizarre system with no written constitution where they can keep <laughs> recycling door of prime ministers coming in. The upside is- yeah, like uh, the, the polarization is not so extreme that it's possible for the support to just collapse. That's yeah. I I, I had the same exact feeling. A few other thoughts. I mean, I agree with you. I don't, I think I don't think Boris had the votes, but I also think it's probably smart of him. Yeah. To push someone in front of him and say, "Hey, buddy. Yeah. Hey, hedge fund guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go have fun like raising, cutting public spending and raising taxes to, yeah. to pay for this economy." Um, hilariously, there's a book coming out about Liz Truss on December eighth oh, yeah, yeah. called <laughs> Out of the Blue. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine writing that really fast? Like, uh, oh, you know, I'm going to get the, the those poor authors yeah, biography of the next prime minister. Uh, I saw this in a Wall Street Journal profile of Rishi Sunak. Uh, quote: The Star Wars fan once surprised a group of school children by telling them he has a quote Coke problem. He then went on a minute long monologue about his favorite type of Coca Cola, which is made from cane sugar in Mexico. So seems like a weird dork. To be fair, actually, I buy the Mexican Coca Cola too. Uh, it you is, know, it's a little in the little bottles. Yeah, it's better. But he does seem like a real dork. Uh, but also like the 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 guy you know who went to like you know got like a Harvard MBA and went to Goldman Sachs. Super smart. Something, you know, super but, smart. But I, I do think like the the he'll be much smarter than Liz Trust. But like having the common touch is not going to be be there. And Boris probably thought like let this guy yeah like cut spending in a t- cost of living crisis. Maybe Boris will somehow stand in the next election. I don't know. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with those politics. I think that uh, restaurants that uh, offer you eight and a half ounce bottles of soda as yeah. opposed to like having a, a you know, fountain Coca-Cola distributor thingy, you should go to jail. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're out, like we keep, I keep this in the, the fridge for uh, like it's good hangover potion, mm-hmm. you know, a little Mexican yeah, Coke. Yeah, you know? yeah, I, yeah. It's probably not what Rishi Sunak uses it for though. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no, no. He's, yeah, uh, he, he sips it while he's watching like the Star Wars. Cricket. You oh. know, or, yeah, no, no, I mean, he's a real Star Wars like nerd. I yeah, think. he loves Star Wars, yeah. I guess. Like, which can get a little uncomfortable, you know, if it goes too far. Hey, yeah, whatever it takes. Uh, okay, let's turn to Ukraine because in a lot of ways Ukraine is driving British politics anyway. Um so the update from the ground is very similar, Ben. The Russian military is bombarding these Ukrainian cities. They're hitting civilian energy infrastructure with missiles, these Iranian-made drones. It's, it's awful. Uh, the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, made a series of phone calls to his counterparts in the US, uh, UK, France, and Turkey to claim that Ukraine was preparing to use a dirty bomb on its own territory. Everybody he called, NATO, everybody else, they called BS. They said, 
seems likely that Russia uh, is trying to set up some sort of pretext or false flag operation. Um, Ukrainian security services are also worried that the Russians will blow up a hydraulic dam to cover their retreat uh, in the southeast of Ukraine. That dam could unleash a volume of water that Reuters said is equivalent to the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Yeah. It's a lot of water. Uh, it's also a major source of power production. Separately, Ben, uh, the uh, Russian court rejected WNBA star Brittany Griner's appeal of her nine-year sentence for possession of a vape cartridge, uh, which is just awful and really actually maybe not separate from yeah. the Ukraine news. But the main thing we wanted to talk about today was uh, a letter to President Biden from 30 progressive Democrats in the House about Ukraine. So the main ask in this letter was that the U.S. explore all diplomatic avenues to end the war, including direct negotiations with Russia. It was caveated all over. It had praise for the Biden policy, support for the Ukrainian government, uh, talked about how you need to include them in negotiations, everything you'd want in there. There was no threat of voting against funding or anything like that. The timing was weird at best. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, this letter was drafted and signed by members as far back as June. Um, don't really get why they waited to put it out two weeks before an election. The substance, though, seemed fine to me. Unfortunately, like the timing created a little mini online shitstorm. The Congressional Progressive Caucus withdrew the letter. So timing issues aside, Ben, I'm like I'm sort of bummed by this because we've discussed this a couple times. It would be great to have a more public conversation about diplomacy and I don't know talks generally. Um, like there's this sense the the reaction to this letter was so over the top. People acted like it was a, a gift to Putin. Other people on the other side act like Biden saying we won't have talks about Ukraine at the table is sort of shorthand for saying they have a veto over our policy. It's obviously ridiculous since we've kind of like metered out our support throughout. But yeah. I don't know, it's just a bummer that the whole thing imploded so quickly. Yeah, everything about this was was kind of mishandled. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, look, the the things you spoke about like speak to the concern of the war escalating in a potentially catastrophic way. I mean, the potential like biblical flood that you alluded to, um, which Zelensky has been warning about, well, that might explain why the Russians were declaring martial law in these parts of Ukraine they control and telling people to leave. Because if you're going to then just destroy the land with this flood. So as soon as I saw those, you know, I was like, oh, maybe this connects. Or if they're going to set off some (laughs) nuclear device and blame it on the Ukrainians. Maybe they want to clear the area. I don't know. I mean, it, but it, it just speaks to like, th- there's a sense that this is about to escalate in a particularly you know, dangerous way. Um, and and yeah, this letter, if you read it, it, like it's literally just saying that we should be exploring diplomacy with Russia. There's yeah. nothing- It's like a restatement uh, of policy. There's literally nothing objectionable in the letter whatsoever. Yeah. So the process of this all Weird to do this within two weeks of a, an election. Weird to do this months after you circulated the uh, letter without telling the people who signed it. Really disappointing uh, to see members throw their staff under the bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Congressman Jayapal basically blamed the staff. For oh, I didn't see it, that. And that, that's not, you know, like, but to your point, also weird to see people be like, this letter is, is stabbing the Ukrainians in the back. I, the reason it's so important to reject that is like, it, I don't think it does the Ukrainians any favors to say that like any debate about this policy or discussion about it or discussion about diplomacy with Russia is inherently throwing them under the bus. You I know? agree. As you just said, like it, it just, what does that suggest? That suggests that like we have this fixed policy that can't, can't even adjust to events or, you know, like can't even suggest like, hey, we might want lines of... Like, take the military, you know, Shoigu calling Austin the most awkward 
Austin picks <laughs> up the phone imagine? and Chorgi's like, let me tell you about this flag, false flag operation. That said, though, wouldn't you want a, a open line of communication with the Russian military? All the time. That may be in the chain of command for the insane nuclear order from Putin, right? And so some of the stuff that's in this letter about just like, because diplomacy is not, it's being equated with like sitting down over the heads of the Ukrainians and carving things up and, you know, giving Crimea away. Yeah, it's like Yalta or something. No, No, diplomacy is just talking. Diplomacy could be trying to reduce the risk of, of inadvertent nuclear escalation or frankly, trying to have lines into the Russian military who may not want to keep carrying out these orders. And so- I get why, you know, the timing of the letter landed like with a bit of a thud, not just before the election, but right after Kevin McCarthy, you know, last week threatened to cut off funding. So it sounded like the left was coalescing with the right. Right. But I, I think it is important, the point you made, we need to preserve some space to be able to say like, hey, like, let's debate and discuss what are the different ways that we can support Ukraine and, you know, try to avoid the worst case outcomes here. Yeah. And like, again, saying that we're not going to have talks with the Russians without Ukraine at the table or Ukraine a part of them is not saying they have a veto over our policy. If if they were controlling our policy, then we would have been doing like HIMAR systems from day one. We would have uh, had a F-16s, no-fly zone. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, no-fly like, zone. Remember, close the skies. Close the skies. Yeah, so they've been yeah. metering out like assistance along the way based on U.S. interests. And I think, you know, I, I just think like voters are smart. They understand that a potential war with Russia is complicated. It's okay to talk about this stuff in a way that is like a little less binary. Well, and here's the other really important point about this, right? Because, well, you make the, the right point that what Biden's saying is, I won't negotiate around the the settlement that Ukraine has to accept without them. That doesn't mean we don't have things to talk to the Russians about. It just right. means Biden's not going to sit there and say, well, maybe you can keep this part of Ukraine and not that part of Ukraine. That's not going to happen. But to your point, if you don't create any space for kind of debate in the center here around this policy, you know where all the concerns about the war are going to go. They're going to go to where Kevin McCarthy took it, totally. right? which is like, hey, I'm getting uncomfortable here. There's nuclear threats. Let's cut off the Ukrainians, right? It's a lot of money. So, yep. you know, to some of you, like some of the Ukraine stands on on Twitter or whatever, who like just you know pile on this stuff, you may might be creating the outcome you don't want because by Dude, punishing yes, anybody yes. who says let's have diplomacy, the only alternative to your position, you know, is where Kevin McCarthy's going, which is like, hey, let's cut these where Tucker Carlson is, basically. or yeah, where Elon Musk. I mean, there's yeah. clearly a void of people. there's a void of and like discussion. Elon Musk yeah. is filling it, or that guy David Sachs, some like idiot tech investor, <laughs> yeah. right wing goober, is filling <laughs> yeah. it. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. why don't we have the CPC, the progressive in the House, fill it? Yeah, or at least try. Well, that that would be a very healthy place to fill yeah, it. That'd yeah, that'd be a better place to fill it. Hopefully, the next. Iteration the of next this letter, letter is better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you see? There's a, a, a Washington Post report about how JD Vance is facing some backlash for his like hardcore anti-war stance. Why do we care about Ukraine? Yeah, we'll see if that actually you know plays out. Yeah, in that, the election, but well, I because like you said, I think most Americans probably have semi-nuanced views about this. Yeah. They, they intuitively support Ukraine. They're okay with giving a bunch of assistance. They don't want there to be a nuclear war. Those are all reasonable positions, by the way. Yeah, you know, like like, yeah. like the <laughs> public opinion on foreign policy is sometimes you know, more commonsensical than than the debates in Washington are about it, you know? Absolutely. And I think Obama, when he was talking about this, sort yeah. of articulated he all articulated that. that. Yeah, he articulated all that, yeah. 
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Okay, so as you mentioned, it's not like the, the biggest story of the maybe the year, maybe the decade, or yep. the next five years was Chinese President Xi Jinping formally secured a third term. Uh, he further tightened his grip on power in the process, uh, and he took another step towards cementing his legacy in Chinese history as being basically as historic a figure as Chairman Mao. Um, normally, the Chinese president uh, is very powerful, but shares some power with a group of seven men called the Politburo Standing Committee. This year, she has stacked the committee full of his, you know, uh, cronies and then a bunch of guys who are too old to be viewed as a threat to him. Sort of savvy move there. Uh, In response, U.S. listed Chinese stocks cratered after the news, as did markets in Hong Kong, I think because companies are worried that she is going to continue the zero COVID policies and just lock down cities. Also probably worried about him. She just taking over more tech companies and running people out of town. Uh, The Chinese government finally released the delayed economic data that we mentioned last week. It showed that their uh, GDP growth fell well short of their targets. But the weirdest moment of the whole thing, the whole event, was when former Chinese President Hu Jintao was basically physically dragged off of the stage. He's sitting next to Xi Jinping with no explanation. Uh, The theories about why range from Hu having some sort of medical issue, I don't know, COVID, anything like that. 
or she basically just wanting to publicly humiliate his predecessor, uh, who, by the way, you know, backed a different guy to become president over Xi Jinping. Did you have any takeaways from the event or sort of like theories what was happening to poor Hu Jintao? Yeah, I mean, like to start with Hu Jintao, it's an interesting contrast, right? Because we overlapped with Hu Jintao in the Obama years. And, you know, what's interesting about Hu Jintao is he was a very consensus oriented figure. He felt like the front man for a party, not the strong man sitting on top of a party. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, like we used to have this joke, uh, Obama and I, because Hu Jintao would read his talking points. And then the uh, translator would read the English language version. The point being that Hu Jintao never deviated from the talking points. So Obama would always be like, maybe the translator could just read it. And Swap so, him. But then Xi Jinping came in and that was not the case anymore. Like this was the guy's own. Now, I make that point to just illustrate whose leadership style as being very different than Xi's. He was consensus oriented. Uh, there was some degree of openness on the internet. You know, I don't want to overstate it, but China was a, not an open society, but relative to where it is now, it was different under who. So uh, that moment to me crystallized how much China's changed in the decades since Xi Jinping came in. In terms of what happened to Hu Jintao, I think this is a really important question. Like some people, you know, on Twitter were saying, well, maybe he's just sick. It's not that big a deal. They waited. This is an incredibly stage managed event, yeah, right? Man. Like nothing is more stage managed than big Chinese Communist Party conferences. They waited to drag him out until after the cameras were brought in, right? So like there's a closed door, like off camera meeting. He wasn't dragged out until the cameras were on. The international press was there. And the best case version is this guy was sick. Like, first of all, they didn't say anything about him being sick. Second of all, if you watch the video, which everybody should, Xi Jinping like doesn't even look at the guy. He won't even look at him. If he's, he's sick, not concerned. Yeah, if he's sick, you'd think he'd be like, oh, you know, yeah. like let me help this guy get out. And to see who reached for like a folder with papers yeah. and this guy, some other guy wouldn't let him open it? Yeah. So I saw some people being like, oh, no big deal. Like this, people get escorted out all the time. Like, well, this guy was like the most powerful man in China for a decade, you know, like this is one of them at least. This is fucking weird, you know? And, and she's been systematically erasing him from history. Oh, and, and criticizing him, right? Yeah. Criticizing him for what, what the, the different kind of leadership. And that leads to kind of what is this? all mean like i think hmm. all the hard, most hardline guys got elevated um the rhetoric shifted uh you know all the rhetoric used to be about this opportunity for china now the rhetoric is about like you know the gathering storm there was like QAnon shit it was like the, <laughs> the storm is gathering you know um it, it kind of suggested a more hostile world and a more aggressive china in response the kind of anti-market economic policies that have slowed growth um were kind of you know fortified. Uh, I'm sure that's part of the market reaction. Zero COVID, no sense that that's going away anytime soon. So like, it felt really consequential and and really pretty fucking dark. I mean, to be honest, and I wish that wasn't the case. Like, I really wish that we could have like a more constructive relationship with China. Um, but she does not seem particularly interested in that. Yeah. And look, I mean, she got here by like brutally locking up and taking out all his rivals. Yeah. What's the guy's name? Uh, Bo Xilai. Bo Xilai, yeah. Yeah, who was just sort of the, you know, seen by some as the biggest competitor to Xi who just got worked. Yeah. I think he's probably sitting in a jail somewhere. Yeah. A lot of those guys are sitting in jail. Um, So this is, yeah, this is kind of like the, and Kevin Rudd called this, you know, when he was on a couple weeks ago, but like, this is like the, the dark version of, you know, the Chinese Communist Party being ratified. Yeah. Indefinitely. Yeah. Uh, another dark strongman we've been talking about a lot uh, in Saudi Arabia. Back on the show, uh, a couple of developments worth mentioning here. So, Ben, first there was the the Wall Street Journal had this long piece about the U.S. Saudi relationship, 
It said in it, no surprise, that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman or MBS privately mocks President Biden and preferred Trump. Yeah, we noticed. Um, the story is full of like whining Saudi sources that Biden wasn't warm and cuddly during the infamous like fist bump uh, trip to Jeddah. Uh, the story was most notable to me in that the Saudi leadership in the, that relationship is still covered like it's normal. And it hasn't really adapted to the fact that MBS is more Saddam Hussein than King Abdullah. A lot more, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Second, the annual Saudi investment conference, the Davos in the desert thingy is happening as we pod. Uh, there are hundreds of business executives, including the CEOs of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Blackstone, hedge fund guys like Ray Dalio, and of course, Jared Kushner and Steve Mnuchin there. There are no Biden administration officials there. Um, many of these same business leaders did not attend this conference in 2018 after the Saudis executed a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi, but predictably, depressingly, they went back for the money. The good news, Ben, is that there was a little note in the journal story that Biden apparently wants to review the U.S.-Saudi relationship and see if it's really benefiting us. So, like, maybe there's some hope here that things will change? I mean, the, to your point, like, what drives me insane is, you know, we always dealt with these stories like, you know, you somehow hurt the Saudi feelings. And so that's why they're human rights abusers, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and yeah. like it is such utter, complete bullshit. You know, th by the way, like nobody like could be ruder than the Saudis. When, like when we the protocol snubs and oh, yeah, people wait, left and right, yeah. insulting people like so th this kind of like, oh, we have to violate the human rights of our people and side with the Russians in a war because Someone wasn't like polite Attentive enough in a, in a meeting. meeting? <laughs> Give me, like, <laughs> if you are a professional journalist and you are writing this fucking garbage, like, shame on you. Like, <laughs> go home and look in the mirror and, and and ask yourself why you are getting spun by a sociopathic trillionaire's staff that his feelings were hurt. A man who butchered someone alive in a fucking consulate yeah. that he controlled, and and you're you're actually swallowing the idea that if only. The Biden administration was like a little more polite in the meeting. They wouldn't have to butcher the people. So like cut that out. And then like let's just like accept the reality that these people are all in with Trump. And we don't need a review to know that. They gave Jared Kushner $2 billion. $2 billion. Like, like you need a review to understand that these people don't share your interest. Like we know where the review ends. They don't share our interests. They don't share our values. They want Donald Trump to be the next president. If it's not Donald Trump, they want Ron DeSantis or whatever like semi-fascist they can cares control less about here, human right? Rights, yeah. yeah. And so like, I, I just, to me, it's like this absurdity of constantly evaluating this as if it's like, like you said, like this, we're, we're evaluating the Saudi relationship in under King Abdullah a decade ago. Like it, we know where this is. So you see that the Saudi-owned Live Golf Tour is playing its tournament finale at, where else? Uh, Trump's course in Miami. <laughs> and so in response, this group called 9-11 Justice, who's been really pushing Trump on this, and Trump just has not cared, is running the following advertisement on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and ESPN. Let's give it a listen. Who can afford to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for exhibition golf? Let's follow the money. Live Golf is funded by Saudi Arabia's Wealth Fund. Saudi Arabia gets its money from oil. Oil they sell to Americans. And now they're driving gas prices even higher. The Saudis are using oil profits to fund exhibition golf, hoping to distract you from their policies of oppressing women, murdering journalists, and supporting the 9-11 terrorists. 
I feel like they're trying to do a lot there yeah, yeah, yeah. in 30 yeah. seconds. They didn't but pick one message. You yeah, know, like, yeah, uh, you got to make choices. Yeah, like read a Dan Pfeiffer message box. Like make make, make some choices. <laughs> yeah, uh, but look, I respect the the attempt. I respect that they're going after it. I think the live golf thing, again, as we talked about, is like just a capacity to rub our face in their capacity to have so much money they can like own us, right? Sports so, watching. You want to watch Phil Bickelson play golf? Like you got to yeah. like, you know, validate the Saudi regime. But like people should stay on this, you know? Is it really like, by the way, like, is like B grade golf like that important to watch? Like I don't. There's yeah. a PGA Tour. Like you, you know, watch the Masters and you know. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you really need to watch the live golf event? I don't know. You know? Is it fun? I heard that you can you can wear shorts. I don't care. I don't watch. I could any give golf. a shit. Like I don't watch golf. I don't and watch I golf. Didn't, at all. You know, Phil Mickelson is like a a fat asshole. Like <laughs> well, his bigger problem is he has huge gambling debts. Well, yeah, like he's just clearly so he's looking for a payday. You know, like just some guy, some dickish guy who happens to be a lefty. I, I've never quite understood the thing about him. You know. But. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, Ben, speaking of Middle Eastern autocrats, uh, Bibi Netanyahu is trying to make a comeback, buddy. You excited? Don't call it a comeback. He's been here for years. He's been around. He <laughs> yeah, never yeah, left. Yeah. Uh, he's trying to forge this far right coalition. Miss my L Cool J reference. I like that. No, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I liked it very much. Um, <laughs> so BB's trying to get together, forge a coalition with a guy named uh, Itamar Ben Gavir, who mm-hmm. is uh, this right, 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 right wing politician who, according to the New York Times, until very recently had hanging on his wall a portrait of a man who massacred 29 Palestinian civilians at a mosque in 1994. So terrorists. He had terrorists on his wall. This guy's a politician now. So Israelis go to the polls again. Netanyahu is hoping that the sufficient number of parties wins, that he can forge this super right-wing coalition, uh, including with uh, Ben Gavir, and displace the current government. Here's another graph from this same New York Times story, uh, which said, quote, if Mr. Ben Gavir helps return Mr. Netanyahu to power, the government will be dependent on a lawmaker who hopes to upend Israel's judicial system, grant legal immunity to Israeli soldiers who shoot at Palestinians, and deport rival lawmakers he accuses of terrorism. We, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this a little bit about how Bob Menendez, uh, senator, uh, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, even warned BB against forging this coalition. But you know, I just thought it was worth kind of again mentioning that it's happening and and for people to understand just how much these far right wing parties are ascendant in Israel. Meanwhile, Giorgio Maloney was sworn in as prime minister uh, in Italy on Saturday. So these people are just everywhere. Yeah, and and look, you got warned, but does, like, it's like the MBS thing. Like, does anybody think Bibi Netanyahu wouldn't? Team up with this guy. If that's what getting yeah. power. Of course, of course. You're, you're going to appeal to his responsibility gene here. Um, I think the challenge is like the Israeli electorate is worn down by like you know however many elections they've so had in the last many. few years. There's some apathy, and yet if Bibi Netanyahu with this crowd gets 61 votes in that majority in the Knesset, like could be like a permanent transformation of Israel, or at least for the foreseeable future, into like a very oh, annexation will happen. right-wing place, right? Yeah. yeah. And and the only other thing I want to say is that part of what you used to hear from Bibi for years and all the uh, Israeli uh, government supporters in this country, they would try to deflect criticism from the settlements and, and, and brutality in Gaza and the rest of it, is they'd always point to like incitement, you know, like the Palestinian authority needs to get, um, you know, like any Semitism or any you know, incitement to violence out yeah, of textbooks. Their communities or textbooks. Yep. 
True, right? Absolutely. Like, that's a good point. Well, what the fuck is this guy? Like, yeah. this guy is the mirror image of the very incitement that they say that, that, that they're so uh, upset about, right? Like, th- like he is inciting people. Like, just oh, his he, politics He goes is, to neighborhoods in East Jerusalem yeah. when Palestinians are being evicted. And he brings his gun and exactly. he calls on the cops to shoot at people throwing rocks. Exactly. And, and you've had this growth in settler violence, right? Kind of this vigilante attacks on Palestinians where the Israeli police or security forces kind of don't stop it, right? This guy is like the representation of that incitement being mainstreamed into Israeli politics. And if you don't think that will lead to volatile outcomes, or, I mean, or unjust outcomes, you're just burying your head in the sand. Yeah. And remember that underpinning all of this is Netanyahu uh, at great legal risk in trying to get back in power so he can get a get out of jail free card. Yeah. Yeah. And the Israeli so. justice system seems to move Pretty slow. I mean, yeah, as yeah. We, we see with Trump, ours moves pretty slow too. Yeah, but there's kind of a Merrick Garland slower. vibe yeah. over there. There's a Merrick Garland vibe over there. Uh, speaking of uh, electorates uh, worn down by too many elections, Ben, so Brazilians go to the polls again on Sunday. This is the runoff election between right-wing president Jair Bolsonaro and leftist former president Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro has now spent years uh, attacking the credibility of Brazil's elections. And there's, again, concern that if he loses, there will be violence and that Bolsonaro might just refuse to leave. Bernie Sanders has been talking about this a lot, including with you on the show. This is all exacerbated by the fact that in the first round of voting about a month ago, the polling was just way, way off, like way, way, way off. They pollsters drastically undercounted the right wing vote. Uh, and Bolsonaro has argued that releasing polls that far off was like de facto voter suppression. Um, now there are some Bolsonaro supporters in Brazil's House of Representatives that are trying to pass a bill that would criminalize publishing a poll that is later shown to fall outside of its margin of error. So criminalizing inaccurate polls. It's a real shot across the bow. 538. All yeah, the Nates out yeah, there. Yeah, the Nates out there. Harry the, the G guy. At, uh, G, yeah, whatever yeah, that dude's yeah, name yeah, 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 <laughs> Trafalgar, yeah, 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 come for you. Yeah. So the stakes couldn't be higher in this one for pollsters and then the <laughs> yeah. planet, uh, given how they're you know deforcing the Amazon. I wish we had a vote save America Brazil. Uh, I don't hate the polling. I'm just kidding. I yeah. I do hate the polling law. Yeah. But uh, hate, one to watch on Sunday. Hate yeah, hate the polling, not the pollsters. Um, it's definitely one to watch. And I mean, what you see suggests Lula has like a slight lead. Um, Fingers crossed. It's way too close to comfort. As you say, like Bolsonaro winning both validates a, you know, if you think a, another Bolsonaro term won't result in a pretty right wing autocratic Brazil, like you have not listened to what this guy said. Um, and, but also, like, we don't have time, like, he, they are cutting down, like, the Amazon could become, go from being like one of the biggest, um, you know, carbon capture rainforests in the world to like a net negative, you yeah. know, like they're, they're torching, uh, the Amazon at that rate. So you have a stake in this, if you're listening, um, even if you, you know, on something more concrete than even the survivability of democracy, uh, the, the survivability of the planet is on the, on the ballot in Brazil. It's a real problem. Uh, a couple of quicker things, Ben. So the department of justice announced charges against six Chinese citizens accused of working as spies and trying to recruit us citizens to undermine a prosecution against Huawei. It's a giant Chinese telecom technology company that we haven't talked about in a while, but is a big player. Uh, in Iran, Iranian teachers held a two-day strike to protest a brutal crackdown by Iranian security services on student protesters. This week will mark the 40th day since Masa Amini uh, was murdered by the Iranian morality police. And then we have not talked about the civil war in Ethiopia in a while. The fighting has been picking up a lot lately. 
government forces have been uh, attacking these these former leaders in the northern Tigray province. Um, there were some secret U.S.-led peace talks led by our our old friend and colleague, uh, NSC coworker Mike Hammer, that didn't you know that didn't succeed, but they happened uh, in the past month. The good news is it does sound like there are some more talks between Ethiopian and Tigrayan reps happening this week in South Africa. So fingers crossed that works because, you know, the UN is still saying that I think like something like 5 million people in Tigray are in pretty dire need of food aid. Yeah. If you if you want to go deeper on this, um, uh, people should read uh, John Lee Anderson, who's just an extraordinary writer for The New Yorker, been around forever, interviewed every flavor of dictator there is. <laughs> um, he had an article recently in New Yorker that's a profile of Abiy Ahmed, the uh, Ethiopian prime minister. And by the way, it's like insane. Like, like they're, he's just hanging out with him for days. And he's like- How does he get that Driving access? him around in the car and he's showing him all these like pet projects. I He had time with Bukele recently he's too. He's a cool dude. He's very chill. Like, you know, I guess like you just want to hang out with him, right? And, uh, but what you come away with is this guy is totally out of touch, totally megalomaniacal, total narcissist. And- also gotten into bed with some real thuggish people, including the Eritreans. And, and, and like, so there's kind of a momentum to this war that he has a hard time stopping. Uh, like the ethnic politics kind of are driving it. And, you know, and he's kind of not, he's in such a bubble that he's not kind of absorbing the uh, the totality of what, what's happened. It didn't leave me particularly optimistic about this. Um, but uh, like, it does feel like, the U.S. and other countries in the African Union are just going to have to stay all over this because they're not going to make peace on their own. Like yeah. so, unless there's like some external actors and probably a lot of them pushing in this direction, this thing will continue to drift sideways, and it's people who will suffer. The uh, I, I noticed a lot of messaging out of the White House um, about Kenya's role. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of praise for the new president of Kenya, uh, President Ruto. Which suggests to me, reading between the lines, that, that that means that they want Kenya to play like a pretty key role here, and Ruto personally. Um, but it, I think it's gonna. This is one of the situations where a lot of diplomatic engagement may not solve it, but may be necessary to keep it from getting worse yeah, yeah, and to get keep things like humanitarian assistance getting in. You think John Lee Anderson makes them soup? He might make soup, and if he did, I bet it's really good. Well, that's you yeah. know, we think we picked the lock here. Yeah. Last thing before the interview uh, with David Lammy that you've all been waiting for. There were a couple quick updates on the Mar-a-Lago documents story that swept the nation and sort of since gone away. Um, the Washington Post reported that- Not on MSNBC, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> they reported that. There's more detail about what documents were taken. Uh, apparently, they included some highly sensitive Iran and China intelligence, some stuff about Iran's missile program. Uh, and they said that these documents are the most sensitive recovered to date. I guess they're still going through them. There was also information about foreign militaries. Um, there was something about some nuclear capabilities. <laughs> None of this surprises me. Like you could see Trump wanting to brag about like the Iran missile stuff, maybe some sort of covert action to spoil it. You could see him having some, you know, China intel that talked about how they felt about him or something. I don't know. All of it makes sense to me. Yeah, it does make it okay. It, well, yeah, I mean, it is uh, like the most sensitive stuff. But like, I think to allow yourself to go to like w- more worst case scenarios, you know, the stuff about the Iranian ballistic missile program. First of all, it's really bad that, that he has this stuff because the sources and methods that helped us gather this information, like. I wonder if they're already drying up, right? Like, let, let's say you were the person passing this intel on China. 
and you know, by the way, that in the past, China, when they found leaks, have like killed people that they, worked for the U.S., right? There, there, were, there um, were news reports that yeah. they rolled up our entire intelligence network in China in the last yeah. like five to 10 so years. So who's to say that's not happening right yeah, now yeah. or that the, the the people that cooperated either in getting information or setting up technical forms of collection are looking at this and be like, I, I'm going to like uh, move to you know, oh, the Canadian Rockies. I'd be in you know, Geneva so I'd fast. I'd be the get the fuck out of wherever yeah. I was, right? So this may already have had a problem. The other thing is like, we can speculate here because why not? Um, Saudis would be very interested in uh, some information about the Iranian ballistic missile For program sure. if, you know, if you wanted to sell it. UAE. Um, you just mentioned the, the Huawei story. Like there's a lot of economic espionage. There's a lot of money tied up in what's happening with like, you know, what do we know about, you know, Chinese markets and, I mean, the point is that Trump could profit extraordinarily off this information if he, if he, if that was his motive. I mean, we, there, like maybe he just wanted this stuff around, but like, why, why is he making these choices about the stuff he wanted around? And we should just bear in mind, like, there's a huge price tag on what this stuff is worth. I'm not saying that's what it was for sure, but like, we shouldn't just assume that you know it was for nostalgia purposes or that he liked to sit around and read about the Iranian Bill's missile program, there, there are worse scenarios where like he might've wanted to profit off this stuff. I mean, his greed is bottomless. Yeah. Did you read, read the story about how he launched Truth Social with some investor goobers? Trump got 90% of the equity. They got 10. They spent months trying to line up investors and some SPAC to take it public, blah, blah, blah. And then Trump kept calling them and demanding they give up all their equity and give it to Melania. Yeah. And then like Don <laughs> Jr. and Eric would like storm into a meeting and demand that they get shares even though they've done nothing. Like it is bottomless greed. The other thing I saw was that Trump's uh, valet, like the guy who brings him yeah. Diet Cokes, might be talking to the FBI. He, I guess the first time they interviewed him, he said, no, we didn't move any boxes. And then they were like, are you sure? And Here, the second yeah. time he said, Trump told me to move boxes from that basement to his office. So that'd be bad. Well, the other guy I saw, uh, first on Truth Social, um, I, I always laugh because I always forget until I see those articles that Devin Nunez is the oh CEO God, of know, Truth Social, right? Uh, and then that ties into what I was going to say, which is uh, Cash Patel, friend of the pod, mm-hmm. um, I saw got hauled in front of the grand jury mm-hmm. too. Sure did. He was a designated rep uh, for Trump on these documents. Uh, most recently wrote a children's book uh, comparing Donald Trump to a king mm-hmm. and the Russia investigation is a children's book about the hoax of the Russia investigation. I don't think he was a very reliable witness in that grand jury. The reports are that he took the Fifth Amendment a lot of times, but, um, you know, uh, it does feel like he committed a crime and nothing anybody can say is going to disprove that. And Merrick Garland at some point will just have to decide, like, do you get away with crimes or do you get charged with committing crimes? Because there's... Like these were not things he could have. De- he literally could not have declassified these things either, because like it's not just those pieces of paper. It's like oh, our entire intelligence collection apparatus about the Iranian ballistic missile program. You're telling me that's not declassified? <laughs> yeah, you no. Know? Come on. Yeah. Give me a break. Mentally, yeah. Secretly. Mentally, yeah. Like I dream Deshaun of genius. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, you will hear Ben's conversation with the Right Honorable David oh. Lammy, Member of Parliament from the Labor Party, talking about Liz Truss conservatives, future of labor, all of it. All the British politics news you need. Very right, very honorable. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. 
there's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. Uh, That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a fog <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. And Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we are very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World member of parliament uh, from the Labor Party, a shadow foreign secretary, and someone who's become our correspondent for failed Tory prime ministers, David Lammy. Uh, David, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ben. Uh, uh, good to be back with you. <laughs> I didn't expect to have you this soon, but um, Liz Truss obviously setting records over there. Um, uh, n- not much to reflect on there in that uh, utter catastrophe. Um uh, I guess I just want to start this conversation by asking you to explain uh, as best you can, why is Rishi Sunak uh, prime minister? Um, how did that happen so fast? And what are you, what are you expecting from, from him uh, that, uh, that contrasts from Liz Truss? Rishi Sunak is prime minister because Liz Truss turned out to be the shortest serving prime minister in British history. Um, her prime ministership was a catastrophe. It was a catastrophe for her personally. It was a catastrophe for our economy. Um, and it may turn out to be a huge catastrophe for the Conservative Party. Um, now, some of your listeners will recall that she was in a pretty heated race with Rishi Sunak back in the early summer. Mm-hmm. And in that, what we would call a selectorate, i.e., this was the race amongst just members of the Conservative Party, which amounted to, you know, 100 and 
um, 40,000 to 160,000 people, tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of yeah. the overall general population here in the UK. Um, in that race, um, Liz Truss tacked very far to the sort of classic uh, Thatcherite um, right-wing uh, low-tax, cut-tax, trickle-down economics position. And Rishi Sunak took a more responsible position in that race, um, warning about the inflationary impact of that and what the markets, how the markets would react. Mm -hmm. Now, he did take up some really, uh, I think, some awful positions on things like immigration, yeah. the culture war battle. He, 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 towards the end of the campaign, he took some very, very, uh, right-wing positions on that to try and get those members back and and this is to also explain that um you know since brexit the classic conservative party under boris johnson lost a lot of what we would describe as one nation tories these are middle of the ground yeah old style compassionate conservatives boris johnson kicked a lot of them out of the party certainly the ones that were in parliament they sort of left the Conservative Party. And so, uh, it, look, it, this is a very similar story to what, what I know has happened in the Republican Party. Um, but anyway, after the catastrophe that was Liz Truss, the party finally turned back to Rishi Sunak. He was the only man standing, uh, if you like, yeah. at, at the right time. So I want to get back to the Tory party in a second here, but the, I, I did want to ask you, I noticed, you know, we, we a week ago when we last taped, uh, which feels like forever in the context of British politics, you know, we were talking about this seems unsustainable. It feels like there should actually be an election to choose a prime minister when you're heading into your fifth prime minister in six years. Um, I saw Keir Starmer and you out very forcefully on the day she resigned, kind of calling for a general election. Is there any way to compel a general election? Do you see a scenario in which there's an election you know, sooner rather than later, and or uh, an election sooner than you know the beginning of twenty twenty five, which feels like forever from now in the context of five prime ministers in six years, most of whom were not chosen by voters. Well, I, I think it, it it's hard to see how this government rumbles on for two years. Uh, so I would say that in theory they've got two years till the next general election. But in practice, I can't see how it works. And the reason for that is um, inflation is now running at higher than 10% here in the UK. Our mm -hmm. uh, interest rates are up significantly and going upwards, which means that mortgages are rising. Yeah. This is hitting um, working people, but a lot of middle class families are remortgaging um, and just being hit between the the teeth really at a time when energy costs and cost of living is rising anyway here in the UK. So whoever is prime minister needs a mandate um, to deal with that. And the medicine that the, that Rishi Sunak is offering is serious cuts to public services. This is cuts to school budgets, cuts to NHS budgets at a time when there are really long waiting lists um, you know, if you need an operation, you're waiting months and months and months even just to get an appointment um, in our National Health Service. And of course, it also means cuts to police and other things. Now, there is no mandate 
for cuts. No one, after years of austerity under David Cameron and George Osborne, no one in Britain wants to see cuts to public services. And it, and it, 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 and it may mean higher taxation, so a reverse of the Liz Truss position, but also uh, further ta- further tax rises as a consequence of the mess that Liz Truss yeah. created. All of that has not got a political mandate. And so I, I think he's going to find it incredibly difficult to affect the change he's going to need to in a very bumpy economic time without the political mandate. The mandate that was given back in 2019 when there was a general election was a mandate to Boris Johnson in very difficult times. This was pre-pandemic and pre the cost of living energy crisis that we're living through here in Europe. And, you know, we saw like everybody else around the world who's kind of riveted to this drama um, in those very final days and hours of Liz Truss's tenure, some very emotional interviews from some Tory MPs um, just doing what I frankly wish the Republican members of Congress would do, just venting their frustration at how chaotic, incompetent, uh, extreme things had gotten inside the party. I wanted to ask you, do you do those folks talk to you privately? <laughs> do you, what are your conversations like with conservative party members in parliament, backbenchers maybe, uh, uh, like uh, any sense that some of the some of those people were even saying that they might have to break and move over to labor uh, or that they might support a general election. Like, what do you hear from your your colleagues across the aisles? We'd say here in the U.S. They do talk privately. Um, so I think it's really important to understand. Let's just go back a bit and, yeah. and let's just be frank here, Ben. Y- you will know that my party, the Labour Party, did have some serious issues um, a few years ago under the Jeremy Corbyn period of leadership. Um, we appeared to the voters because it was true, a very divided party. Um, there was a lot of acrimony amongst um, MPs, um, a lot of disagreement. It was very public. The public do not like divided parties. They like united parties. The truth is there was a hell of a lot of focus on us under Keir Starmer. We've cleaned up that mess. Um, things have changed. Uh, the Jeremy Corbyn period is is over. Um, the Repub- the, not the Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> it feels that way. Yeah. The Conservatives yes. are horribly horribly divided yeah there are about four or five parties in one party yeah um they um the something called the erg which is the super uber um brexiteer right wingers in that party um have a lot of sway um they're a bit like the kind of tea party group were in the republican party and they they there's a lot of grief. And and Rishi Sunak, by the way, has got to handle this grief. And I'm not sure, I think he's going to find that incredibly tough. So, it, so the divisions that erupted, and they erupted in part because um, Liz Truss just took this very libertarian position. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and there was quite a lot of incompetence um, in her position. They just erupted onto the front pages of the media because the media finally looked in hard at the Conservative Party, finally, and recognised those divisions. I don't think those divisions are going to go away. Um, I think that they're still very much there. And I think for the big decisions facing our economy and how you how you fix that economy... Um, um, I think that, um, I think that they will, they will come back. So it's going to be very, very hard, I think, to, to see how 
the position will recover a bit because I don't think the questions of incompetence yeah. will come to Rishi Sunak in the same way as Liz Truss. So they, the position for them in the polls will recover a bit. Yeah. But in the tough times ahead, will they remain united? Um, whose side are they on? Are they on the side of working people or will they be on the side of of, of special interests within their movement? I think they will. And I'm afraid those rows will erupt once again. Yeah. I mean, one more question on this before we get to labor, um, you know, because you, you kind of answered one question I had, which is kind of what is the, <laughs> the conservative party? Uh, and I think you put it aptly. There's several parties kind of in one. I, I did want to ask, like, h- how much of this is just they've never been able to climb back from their own dishonesty with themselves and with the public about Brexit. You know, I, I know I know you guys have moved on from Brexit. You know, you're in a post-Brexit Britain. Uh, I know you guys aren't campaigning on a return to the EU. But it does feel like, you know, they told all these lies to, to pass the referendum. They've now tried multiple versions of a post-Brexit UK. You know, each prime minister has had a very different version of that. Um, and the Tory party... Or, or, or is this just kind of like they, they, the dog that caught the car, as we'd say in the U.S. Uh, with Brexit, and they just don't, they don't having done this massive world-changing thing, like if they just not come to terms with that. I mean, how key is Brexit ben, to understanding ben, where we are? Ben, Ben, you're right, but it's bigger than that. Uh, it's bigger than that. So the last big major, um, I think, conservative period in government was the Thatcher major year years in government. Once Margaret Thatcher left um, as leader in the Conservative Party, they were horribly um, torn over the issues of Europe. Yeah. That, that reached culmination with Brexit. But there's a bigger story to tell. It's important to remember that the David Cameron period was largely, a, he was in, in coalition with the Liberal Democrats. The Conservatives could not win on their own. They had to govern with the Liberal Democrats. Uh, the Conservatives only really got a period on their own under Boris Johnson. And that only came about as a result of landing on this Brexit issue, um, the mm. leave remain debate. Yeah. But that really became a culture war. Um, and, and, and that period for uh, in British history uh, put to one side the old story uh, in pla- in politics, which is basically that all politics is about the economy, stupid. I can't now remember which famous American president said Cl- that. Clinton, uh, yeah. But, Clinton, I'm, uh, yeah. but I'm borrowing that phrase. And so Brexit, the culture war, became the big story. Now, once Brexit has happened, and it happened, what's the story you then tell? We yeah. then have the pandemic, and we're now into the big splits. So, look, you can run an argument that the big the big centre-right story, the big centre-right moment has not arrived, which is actually why there's such open ground for the British Labour Party, as long as it's prepared to govern from the centre, as well as obviously those who are traditionally toward, on the left of the, of the British spectrum. So I, I think there's a big, big problem. Uh, for the Conservatives. That problem is presenting itself um, in the infighting that you're seeing. We've now had uh, three prime ministers in less than two months. We've had four finance secretaries in less than four months. And by the way, we may see even another change before we get 
to the next general election <laughs> because of the divides yeah. um, uh, that I've indicated. And because in the end, we now have a billionaire leader yeah. at a time when people are really finding it hard. And it's not completely clear that the slick Rishi Sunak is the answer that the British people want because he was not put there by the British people. Yeah. He was put there by the Conservative Party. Yeah, yeah. You know, former Goldman Sachs guy married into a billion dollar fortune. Um, well, that uh, that does the Tories. <laughs> so with the Labour Party, um, I want to ask you about what, what your story is, your post-Brexit, post-collapse of the Tory story. Um, you know, you have this a huge lead in the polls, as you said, is is going to narrow a bit. But you know, you're 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 clearly the the more mainstream party now in a lot of ways. I, I do want to people who listen to this podcast know we're we're fans of yours, friends of yours. Um, but but I think objectively, what I've heard from people too is that after that disruption of the Corbyn years and Keir Starmer kind of getting his legs under him, that that last party conference you guys recently had, people were like, okay, wait a second, something is happening here. This is kind of beginning to click in. But you have a party that runs the gamut from, you know, a, a Keir Starmer tack pretty closer to the center, you know, an Angela Rayner, right, who's out to the left. I think a guy like you is somewhere in between the two. Like, what is the center to the left story that Labour will tell from now till the next general election? What What do you want the British people to think about when they think about the Labour Party? Well, they have to trust us once again. And, you know, they haven't been able to put their faith in us for now 12 years. Um, they have to be sure that we're not just preoccupied with ourselves, that we're looking at the country. I think the bounce that we've got in the polls are not just as the result of the mess that the Conservatives have found themselves in. They're also as a result of a very successful party conference season. And it was and and you know, the September conference season is is significant here um, in the British cycle. And I think they did look in and they saw Keir Starmer presenting himself to the country at large. Now, what we told was a story of a build up economy rather than a trickle down economy. And we centered that economic message on um, a green prosperity plan, uh, a plan around um, energy, and a, and and a, and, a, and, a, and and a story around jobs that seems to have landed incredibly well in the red wall. Those seats that we lost, where people are beginning to understand that that green revolution can be about jobs for them, jobs that have left their community many years ago and and not come back. And they do trust Labour on things like the National Health Service, where there are significant problems at the moment, and on uh, education, where we've been traditionally very strong. It's been important to gain ground once again on the economy. It's when Labour's out of power, it's usually because we become to not be trusted on the economy. We have a very, very good um, um, uh, economic spokesperson under Rachel Reeves, uh, and she's guided us back to the centre ground and to be trusted back on the issue of the economy. So uh, I think there's more to do. We now have to set out more of a reform agenda. I, it's not just how we would spend the money, but but the the, the way we would run the system slightly differently or, or, or differently to the Conservatives. So they do want to hear a reform message. And I think that we'll be, be ramping those messages up uh, over over the coming the coming months and years. I mean, let me give an example in my area of policy, foreign policy, which I'm responsible for. 
Um, when I came into the job in November, it, in much of the developed world, there was a lot of discussion. This is last November about the failure of the global south, a lot of countries in Africa to vaccinate their population, even with one uh, COVID vaccine, never mind the two or three jabs that most of us were getting in developed economies. Look, the big message in a party like mine is not just the question of how do we help developing economies uh, vaccinate their population. The bigger question ought to be, how are we using the science capacity of a country like the United Kingdom to help our brothers and sisters in the global south in parts of Africa with their own manufacturing capacity to have their own vaccines. Yeah, That's the reform agenda that I think populations want to hear in an area like development and aid. The, a different message that meets the 21st century, both domestic needs and international needs. And right across public services, we're going to be being stronger on our reform message. And I think that that does prepare the ground very definitely for a general election that could come. It could come as early uh, as next year, um, but it may well go the way to 2024. Obviously, we we want the election today, but as you indicated earlier, uh, it's not in our gift to deliver that because uh, we would need Conservative MPs to vote with us um, in Parliament, a vote of no confidence to bring about that general election. Yeah, I, and I wanted to ask you, given your your portfolio uh, of uh, as Shadow Foreign Secretary for for British kind of foreign policy, one of the interesting things about the last couple of weeks is it was both very bad for the UK's image in the world, but also a reminder that that the people care about what happens in the UK. You know, the the silver lining is that you know you know yes, it's embarrassing your political you know dirty laundries uh, visible to everybody. People are making jokes about lettuce around the world, um, but you know it's. People still care who the prime minister of the UK is. If, if you know clearly between Brexit and all the prime ministers of the last few years, there has been a hit to to Britain's global standing, um, and you don't have the you know the cloud of the EU to amplify um, what you're doing around the world. But you do get to define what is the UK in the world. If you let's say there was an election and you got in there uh, and you were you know basically in charge of going out and telling a new story to the world about how they should see the UK how do you begin to kind of repair the damage of the last few years and and what is that message of what what are the priorities of a starmer lammy you know foreign policy um if you guys get in there well look, let me be very clear the united kingdom is a member of the G7 we have a seat on the security council and we're the sixth richest economy in the world with an outsize um, reputation globally. And I think that the global community, when I speak to them, want to see Britain back at the table, um, trusted, reliable, um, a good multilateral partner in forums of many, many different kinds across the globe, uh, standing up for human rights, reliable on the rule of law. Uh, And unfortunately, under this government, we see Britain being very inward looking, not reliable and not a reliable partner in a a number of ways, withdrawing from different multilateral forum across the world, reducing our aid budget, not reliable on areas like human rights, undermining human rights domestically um, and the 
Northern Ireland Protocol, which is an attempt to um, it undermines the Good Friday Agreement and causes an unnecessary row with our European partners, if you like, it continues the Brexit divides. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid has terribly undermined our reputation. I'm not sure we led very well when we were leaders of COP26 on issues of climate and the environment. So there, I'm afraid the world is, many of our European partners hold their hands heads in their hand uh, on matters of the UK. Um, and I'm afraid, um, uh, you know, you can read the newspapers to see that there have been wrinkles between our relationship with the United States uh, of America as well. The Northern Ireland Protocol coming up um, in a bipartisan way whenever I'm in Washington. So uh, I think that this is a reset moment. And let me just make a broader point. And the broader point is, uh, and this is a very, very serious point. The United States and the UK at that at our best selves have been probably the key global partnership in the 20th century. At our best, we've done some really, really great things to stand up for democracy, for freedom, um, um, for fair trade um, across the planet uh, when we've got things right. And I do think that the last decade we saw a period where the United States left the global stage yeah, yeah. and became a very unreliable partner uh, with much of the world holding holding its head in its hands uh, during the Donald Trump period. And the truth is, Ben, um, in this recent time, the UK has found itself in the same position. Yeah. Um, this doesn't just damage our own countries. Uh, it, 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 it causes tremendous problems uh, in the wider global community. And I think people are just waiting and praying for the United Kingdom to come back to the table in a reliable way. And that is what um, a Labour government, that is what our foreign policy mission um, is. It's why I'm spending a lot of time on the road globally, uh, yeah. um, in, in all, all continents of the world. And people are relieved to see me and get an indication of what it would mean to have Labour back at the table. And I know that when Joe Biden came into the White House, yeah. the mood was, this is a reset. <laughs> and, yeah. and the world opened their arms to the United States and, and welcomed um, the United States being back at the table. Yeah. No, it does. I mean, it's a great note to end on. And I, I just kept thinking when I was watching that, um, not just because I, I know and admire you guys, but like if, if you had a Labour government elected with a big mandate, you know, in a clear running room for five years, um, boy, I think there'd be a lot of sighs of relief. <laughs> and and I just think people want to see us succeed as democracies and frankly, increasingly multiracial democracies, right? And you have Rishi Sunak embodies the complexity of that, right? Because he's the first person of color. But, you know, he also just appointed a really hardline home secretary in Swell Braverman, who's also- Well, look, a, let me a, just say, actually, yeah, yeah. I, I should just say at that point, um, because I think it is important just to dwell on this, I think it is significant yeah. that Rishi Sunak uh, is a man of color, uh, the first ethnic minority, um, um, visible minority, if you like, um, to assume um, this role. And uh, no doubt about it, uh, my father, when he arrived in the UK in 1956, uh, and Rishi Sunak's grandparents could would never have dreamed. Yeah that we would be um, at this point. That is 
of huge significance. Um, and it's a tribute to the way in which um, multiculturalism and modern Britain is about our multi-ethnicity. We saw that in the way that we delivered the Olympics back in 2012. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's a work in progress. And of course, um, someone like me has strong critiques of how we can do that even better. Yeah. But it is right to say that uh, it's a huge achievement that Rishi Sunak um, has got this role. And I pay tribute to uh, to the Conservative Party under David Cameron, yeah. where he was determined to modernise the party and bring on a generation uh, of uh, uh, ethnic minority MPs from a range of different backgrounds. Yeah, well, now we just have to get to the place where we're both multiracial democracies who have our stuff together at home and can be reliable abroad. So that's the moment we keep working for, my friend. Uh, thanks so much for uh, shedding a lot of light on this and uh, for all the work you're doing out there. Really appreciate it. Always good. Always good to speak to you. Thanks so much. Thanks again to David Lamy for joining the show. Uh, so wait, do the Patriots play the Jets next week? They do, yeah. Yeah. Who wants to watch that? Five and two Jets. Crap. Yeah, five and two Jets. We suck. We got worked by the I Bears. I mean, we just, like, j typical Jets, like, we're on the ascent. We're powered by this incredible rookie running back. He breaks, like, a seven-yard touchdown run, and then he tears his ACL. So, How do you tear his ACL? Um, you know, and, like, basically, like, not that many plays after he broke, broke this run. So, uh, Tough. it's not great. Uh, but, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll uh. My I'll, team's always collapse. I'll match you a, a quarterback controversy. Because we had we had Mac Jones starting. You were like platooning quarterbacks. Second guy got hurt. Yeah. Then we put in Bailey Zappi, and then Mac came back, and then he got benched after like two series. Then Bailey went in, and then we played terrible. We got crushed. So now it's going to be like a real debate. Well, uh, Tom Brady sucks now too, so at least yeah, you don't have to feel bad about that. Hey, by the way, listener, we did this at the end for yeah. you. Yeah. Well, we the know Knicks, you don't want to hear this crap. The Knicks are off to a solid two and one start. So yeah. all my hope is now going over to the Knicks. There you go. Long season. Uh, all right. Well, talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.com.